This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Many of us reconnected with our gardens and the outdoors over the last year, turning our attention to the natural world to help us deal with the global pandemic. And through it, we discovered ways to welcome in more wildlife. But could we do more? Hello, I'm Kate Bradbury, Wildlife Editor of Gardener's World magazine. Today, I'm talking to naturalist and television presenter Chris Packham about how his garden helped him through lockdown. And I started by asking him how his relationship with the garden has changed over the last year. It's become a lot more intimate, I think. And I think I've worked a lot harder on that space for two reasons. One, it's been so much more rewarding to be in that space. And secondly, because I've had the time to to give to it. Typically, I would have been charging around to and from that space, doing what I could on the spur of the moment in any five-minute period before or after a dog walk or before or after I went through the gate and, and left for a week or so. But having been here in that space, and for me, it's a new space, I've, I've moved house. I've been taking stock of that resource and thinking, how can I modify it to make a better place for for wildlife and and for myself? And I actually feel that as a gardener, and I'm still not going to afford myself that epithet completely, (laughs) but as an aspiring gardener, I've made significant progress, actually, in the last year. My fingers have gone, there's a a little tint of green on the tips. A little tint of green. How lovely. (laughs) What have you been doing then? 
I've taken stock of the space and I've looked at it historically and I've, I've looked at the trees that are growing there and I've tried to analyse how that space has come together botanically. Um, and I've looked at the soil and I've looked at the drainage and I've, and I've really made a sort of a, a ground up, forgive the pun, assessment of what it is, um, what its problems were and what I can do to rectify those and, and improve it, of course. So I've gone back to, to basics and there were some very good signs. I've got some mature trees in the garden some mature oak and beech, which are nice, um, some alder and hazel too, and one okay. Scots pine tree. But it was lacking in fruiting trees. So I've bought and planted some semi-mature uh, rowan trees. I brought some birch in, as there was plenty of birch outside the garden in the immediate area. So all of those things that will love to eat birch and come and visit birch will hop over the fence, I hope. And um, I've also planted quite a lot of holly trees in terms of a screen. And all of this has been facilitated by the rather um, arduous and expensive removal of a huge number of rhododendron. Oh, blimey. No, worse. Worse than no <laughs> blimey. Uh, it's, been, it's been a nightmare. Has the, the it? They were growing rampantly for more than 100 years. We're talking oh. about, you know, rhododendrons with enormous fortitude here. So we cut them all down. And we turned them into wood chip and we gave them away to people that wanted wood chip. And then we set about the process of removing the roots. And I think that will probably be continuing for someone for the next century. Uh, because wow. every time I stick a fork in the ground, unfortunately, I find another one. But we've been as diligent as we can because I do want to replant those areas. I'm in the process of doing it now. I've been sticking in wood anemone tubers. I'm, I'm planting wild garlic bulbs and, and, and bluebell in those areas. And I'm significant, you know, I'm really hoping that I'm not going to have to do too much more root pulling and then damage the, the, the new plants that I put in. But yeah, removing all the rhododendron was essential. And obviously I needed a, a sort of a, a hedge and I didn't want yeah. to plant anything non-native. So I've gone for holly, a bit slower growing, but plenty of holly again. I've looked over the fence. I'm analysing my broader environment and it will be compatible with, it, with everything else that's growing here. Amazing. Amazing. So all of this, all of this sort of rhododendron digging out must have been kept, kept you quite fit over the last year then. Well, I, it's kept me aching in places I'd <laughs> forgotten, forgotten about aching in for some considerable time. Yeah, I, I've dedicated two days a week and, and I've done, uh, you know, a lot of manual labour and I, I'm sure it's done me enormous good. Um, I have been aching. I've also got cuts and sores and blisters and bruises as well because getting back into the practice of um, wielding a pickaxe and, mm. and a fork has been... Um, entertaining <laughs> only one bad back incident which fortunately only lasted a week but That's now it's down, on, down yeah <laughs> now it's down on the hands and knees which is the more exciting stage because you know it's all very well taking things out that's a destructive process obviously I mean I think yeah. removing non-natives in in that capacity is a good thing um but I, I do prefer the creative process. So we've planted so far uh, over 100 holly trees. Wow. We've planted uh, 75 hazel. Uh, we've planted 14 rowan, uh, six birch, uh, a horse chestnut, two hawthorn. Um, yeah, we've been really... <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. I know. In the rain, in, in the, the rain. wind, oh. in the cold. Uh, but now we're on, firstly, we're, we're just finishing off the bulbs now. And they were a bit late. I know it's a bit late, but, you know, it, it, it's taken us longer than we thought to get rid of the rhododendron. Um, and the, the seed's been ordered and there's the, you know, the bed has been prepared. It's been rotivated and raked. And uh, hopefully in the next 
depending on the weather in the next week or so, we'll get those wildflower seeds in and, and we get rid of what, what I inherited was a, one of the most tedious lawns <laughs> in, in the history of lawndom. So that's all gone. And, and by hopefully by the end of the year, it will be a, a, a bristling mass of some annuals that I put in for a bit of instant colour and then obviously some perennials that will come through. Lovely. Lovely. Um, now you had, I mean, are you, are you going to be creating a new meadow in this place? Because you had a bit of a love-hate relationship with the meadow in, in your last garden, didn't you? Well, I, I loved putting the meadow in and, I, and, and it prospered for a few years before Mayor's Tale came in. And if I ever see any mare's tail in this new garden, I, w- I will shriek. You'll hear the shriek from wherever <laughs> you are in the world, and it will be instantaneously removed. Mare's tail became a real problem. Um, I don't like to spray things, but nothing eats mare's tail. It's it's no. you know it's really a robust plant full of um, you know calcium or silica. It's really crunchy. Um, Rabbits don't mind nibbling it when it's fresh, I found. But then rabbits eat everything else as well. <laughs> so so there, was a win, you know, there was a win and lose there. So, no, mare's tail became a real issue. And we strimmed it back. We strimmed it back. We kept trying to hit it. We rotivated it so that it, it, we, that would get it going again. And then we strimmed it again. Um, someone else is now going to inherit uh, a, a meadow, which is, you know, under a, a zombie assault from, from mare's tail. I mean, is that why you moved house? Be honest. <laughs> it isn't actually, but but um, I, I'm I'm very friendly with the person that's moving into the house, and um, I not shall for give long. Them a, well, no, no. But I, I, just, I, I didn't put the mare's tail there. I just got, I, I don't know where it came from, but it certainly mm. wasn't a deliberate introduction. But I have to say, I wasn't aware of just what a problem it w- would turn out to be. Yeah, touch wood. I've never had to deal with it, so I hope that stays that way. It's a ferocious competitor, and it just comes up and forms a really dense sward. Some things get through it. You know, some of the mallows get through it, and corn mm. cockle, I notice, will, will grow up through it, those taller uh, plants. But um, quite a lot is just swamped out. What was interesting, though, is that those parts of the meadow that hadn't been invaded by the dreaded mare's tail um, had gone through a succession. And in the the last summer that I was there last year, there were all sorts of things which I tried to establish and thought I'd failed. But things like yellow rattle really came on last ah. year. And, and, and some of the vetches uh, really came on. And previously, they were probably there, but invisible in, in, in the meadow. So it was going through a, a nice stage. And I think it was in its about sixth season which was wasn't wasn't too bad gorgeous I do like that about meadows they they just change every year I mean my meadow's just about to hit its third year and um yeah the first year it was just all oxide daisies and then last year there was a lot of clover and I sort of don't know what's going to be there this year and that's actually quite promising about the yellow rattle because I have planted or sowed some seed you're supposed to sow it fresh in August aren't you when it's when it's uh when it's ripe and uh I've never seen it so maybe yeah. Maybe it'll start showing itself soon. Well, I put mine in to try and check the grass growth, of course, in, in the meadow yeah. to act as a, a natural grass retardant. Um, and, yeah, it'll be interesting to go. I go back to that meadow, the garden, frequently. Um, it's just around the corner. And uh, I'll be interesting to see what happens to it this, this year. Mm. It's nice that you can still continue the relationship with your previous garden whilst yeah. all having a new one uh, around the corner. I wanted to ask about conservation in the garden you know as as a gardener as a a naturalist you know we all know um about the staggering declines of of some species and we all 
hope we can do things to to slow those declines in our gardens um i mean how how do you feel about gardening do you feel positive about the changes you can make i think you can be very positive i i just think we as ever need more people taking the right steps more rapidly than than they are i think it's really important that we all empower ourselves to realize we can make a difference even on a, a small scale a garden scale i mean all of our gardens added together you know, some an area the size of Suffolk is a significant resource. And if we were to manage them with even a little bit of wildlife in mind, um, collectively, then that would be that would be fantastic. And I, I think there's somewhat of a disparity between people like myself who basically only garden for wildlife. I'm interested <laughs> in reverting my space to a piece of ancient woodland now with the greatest floristic diversity. And therefore, I'm hoping all the other um, animals and fungi will come as a result of that endeavour. So I'm looking to re-naturalise, rewild, if you like, yeah. a, small, a small area. But it will be an island in an area. And I, I, you know, I've already been out and, and, and wandered around uh, the other side of the fence. And there, there aren't any bluebells and there are no primroses and there are one or two celandines. And this is because of enormous overgrazing. So what I have to do uh, once I've got my own space going is go and knock on my neighbor's door and say look come and have, come around when it's safe to do so come and have a look at this this is what i've done it, it's it's taken a bit of effort it hasn't cost me a lot of money because nature's doing most of the work if you did this as well then we could join up our spaces they would be larger but that connectivity you know allowing you know certain species to move through a landscape because our gardens would act as a corridor would be you know as important as increasing the 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 space but um that's what i think it comes down to it's more you know using your garden to stimulate community interest you know do well again when it's safe to do so you know show people you know without bragging but get them around and say look look at this this is beautiful you could do this in fact it's relatively cheap and requires less maintenance and and look what happens you get all these beautiful butterflies these remarkable bees the birds are singing and over there on the compost heap i've even got a slow worm and at night, guess what? Hedgehogs come out to play. And, and I think more and more people are, you know, certainly post-lockdown, are aware of the value of the wildlife in their garden from a mental health point of view. They, they, they've connected with that and they see that as being part and parcel of a healthier space and place to be. And we see this being posted all over social media. So I think there's a renewed interest in people allowing their space to be a space for wildlife as well. Not all of it. I mean, listen, I'm, you know, if you've got young kids and they want to play football, you might need a bit of lawn. But my point is, if you can make a bit of your garden, even a very small bit of your garden, more wildlife friendly, then that mosaic that forms within your community will be a better place and things prosper there and we see this happening hedgehog street you'll be aware of where people yes. make holes in their fences for allowing hedgehogs to come from garden to garden has worked and we've seen that working and hedgehog populations stabilizing rather than declining in urban areas where this has happened we see increases in certain garden bird populations you know these animals are living in a marginal habitat they're essentially woodland species things like great tits and blue tits their populations have risen significantly in the last 25 to 30 years as have greater spotted woodpecker um great spotted woodpecker so you know we are making a difference we're feeding them we're providing them with shelter and with homes and and you know in the words of kevin costner if you build it they will come and they always turn up in the end they do they really do and of course 
many of us um, since the pandemic um, have formed um, local WhatsApp groups with our neighbours. Um, and that's something that I'm working on at the moment with mine. You know, I'm surrounded by paved gardens and, and plastic lawns in a very urban area. Um, but, you know, I, I know more of my neighbours now and I've actually I've actually printed out some swift leaflets to go and deliver swift leaflets to all of my neighbours to, to see if we can put more nest boxes up and, and you know, grow more plants for insects that, that, that they need to eat. And there's just so many little things things we can all be doing little things that are you know off the shelf easy to acquire or to manufacture yourself require you know relatively small amounts of effort to input but i think the 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 reward is i mean if you imagine you post all your swift leaflets out and one or two of your neighbors are bold enough to get some swift boxes and put them up or cut some holes in their eaves um it's not just about the swifts that are returning and to a you know a usable resource. It's the fact that you've made contact with people and you've you know you've got that com- community to talk to. Because I guarantee, yeah. if you get swifts and and Barry around the corner doesn't get swifts, but Sheila across the road does, there'll be constant banter about who's got the most swifts and whose swift came back first and and all that sort of stuff. And and this again is I think is a great way of unifying a community, which can then deal with all sorts of other issues, not wildlife related. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, this year all my neighbours are complaining because I got all the frogs born and they didn't get any frogs born. So, you know. <laughs> well, was, you could share some out. You, well, you must be greedy. <laughs> you must be greedy. I mean, you know, you could put it, you're, you're not moving it far. There's no, you know, contravention of mixing genetics or anything like that there. I mean, you could give them a couple of little jam I could, I could. I'm quite, I'm quite enjoying my sort of wildlife crown at the moment. Maybe they'll get well, a Well, you're like the Jeff, the Jeff Bezos of frog spawn. <laughs> You've got to be a bit more, it's a bit more sharing. A bit more sharing. <laughs> You're an amphibian megalomaniac down there. Oh, it's not my fault the frogs love me. Um, so, sort of coming on to that, how? I mean, how did how did the garden help you during lockdown? I mean, it must have been quite isolating for you, um, especially so you know when you're used to working so much and being away from home so much. Um, did the garden help you through that, or was it just a really nice break? Uh, no, it did. Um, I think the thing is that, yes, I spent a lot of time away, but whenever I was at home, I never went out the gate. Mm. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I was, you know, much to the <coughs> annoyance of my partner and stepdaughter, you know, a man with a big enough freezer to go home and not need to go out again. And I, and I wouldn't go out again. And they said, come on, let's go for a meal. Let's go. So, and so. <laughs> you know, so I, you know, I had been in training in, in a sort of, uh, obtuse way for lockdown for some time I'm quite a solitary person I like my own company and I certainly like my own company when I'm exploring the natural world so of course um, there were issues with my elderly father you know we went through some of the the turmoil that many other uh, people have gone through and during this period so on one side it was terribly challenging and fearful and frustrating and confusing all of those emotions that we've endured over the last year on the other side it was a a, a period of, of relative bliss to be quite honest with you going into that garden on a day-to-day basis reacquainting myself chronologically with the way that one season moved into another without interruption was not something I'd enjoyed being able to do since I was a teenager probably and I never foresaw the opportunity to do that again so for pretty much the last year I've been going to a a piece of woodland every single day, sometimes twice or three times a day. And and I've grown to know that, that area, um, the place that I love more than anywhere else on earth, even more deeply. 
Um, you know, I saw things within the first few weeks, if I'm honest with you, which must have been there for a long time. But because I was always in and out, um, albeit connecting as maximally as I could when I was in, but spending a lot of time out, I'd miss them. And mm. it, it was a bit of a revelation. In fact, to be quite honest with you, I was quite embarrassed by finding some of the things there because how hadn't I seen them before? Why? You know, and it was simply like so many other people. I just had that extra bit of time. It was yeah. all those people that you know, normally were nipping and out of their garden. Maybe they were filling their bird feeder. But this time, because they were in lockdown, they not only filled it, but they took the time to stop you know, and look out the kitchen window and watch it for an hour and see what turned up. And, and, and they were pleasantly surprised by, by what they found. And what did you find? What, what were these things that, that you hadn't seen before that you noticed afresh with pandemic eyes? Well, one thing that I determined was that I would have specific goals in terms of my sensory connection to that environment. Okay. Um, because I think that we have begun to understand that going into the natural environment can be very good for our mental health, and obviously our physical health too. But And just being there... Uh, subconsciously is an asset to us for all sorts of physical and, and mental reasons. But I think you can take it a step further if you make an attempt to really engage with, with nature. So what I tended to do was choose uh, a mission, if you like, on some of my walks um, and, and and time spent in the garden that I, and, and focus on only one thing. So very simply, I would go out and I would think, right, do you know what? I'm going to concentrate today. I'm not looking at things, but listening to things. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to listen to, on today, bird song or bird calls. And then another day I would go out and I'd say, oh, today I'm just going to listen to insects. And by choosing that sort of deliberate focus, I was able to exclude all of the visually exciting things and the, even the acoustically exciting bird song because I was just thinking about the insects. And that did allow me to enhance my connection. And I found things that I hadn't found before. When I was listening to birdsong, I found, you know, certain species nesting in the woods that they must have been there. But I, I, And I'd heard them from time to time, but never stopped to figure out how many there were, where they were, and counting them, and then follow them through their breeding cycle. Uh-huh. So, And then other times I would go out and, and I thought, well, do you know what, this is going to sound a little bit unusual. But bear in mind, I'm not a hippie. I'm an old punk rocker. I thought... <laughs> I would just go out and I would touch the trees. I would feel the trees. Never hug them. No, I wasn't hugging. I just, <laughs> just, just. They don't need a hug from me. I'm inconsequential in their lifespan. I mean, <laughs> some of the trees that I was touching are hundreds of years old. I'm, I'm just a, a blip on their surface for a moment, you know. Um, but you know, I would just feel the difference between you know the bark of oak and beech and birch um, and and yew and and. And in the process of doing that, I was also smelling them as well. They all smell completely different. They all feel completely different. Some are softer than others. Some are more crenulated than others. Obviously, you can see that with your eyes. But when you actually feel them, I, I, do you know what? It was just, I only did that because I had a bit of extra time. I'm not normally going to allow myself, you know, an hour, you know, going out and closing my eyes and just feeling different trees. Birch bark feels so nice. You know, it's all sort of fluffy and woolly where it's peeling and it's also quite soft if you press it with your fingertip you can feel give in it you can't feel much give in in oak bark you know it's pretty pretty robust but birch even mature birch has got a softer outer layer and you know if you stick your fingernail on it you can leave an impression again harder Mm. to do on on oak so just get that's that's what i'm like you know 
I've got one short life. I just want to maximally connect with my environment. So, oh, that's yeah. so beautiful. I'm going to go out and press my fingernails into my birch tree after that. It's lovely. Yeah, stroke the when it peels those sort of fluffy bits, yeah. and also they can they make quite a nice noise as well. If you close your eyes when you're doing this sort of. But, you know, but best to best to do it in private. Don't don't go and stand in a municipal park and, and do this at the moment. You know, um, but but then you know, the, the, yeah, the rustle of of those fraying mm. parts of the bark is quite quite pleasant. And on another occasion, you know, I, I this is even even more bonkers really. But it was a very windy night, and I thought I'm going to go out and I'm going to stand under different tree species, and I'm going to see if I can hear the difference between the wind blowing through their branches and twigs and leaves. Oh, that's gorgeous. Right, and and again, I know you're going to think it's even more bonkers, but you can hear the difference. Oh. Seriously, they make a much different sound. And when you think about it, it's pretty obvious because in some of those species, the leaves are smaller and softer, and yeah. in the others, they're larger and far more brittle or, or less pliable. And so, yeah. as a consequence of that, when the air moves over them and they touch one another, and so on and so forth, they make a completely different sound. The sound mm. of oak and beech is profoundly different. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've sort of noticed during the day, but the idea of going out at night and then just sort of not being able to hear anything else but that tree, that's, mm. that's yeah, that's pretty amazing. I'm going to do that, definitely. You've inspired me. Good therapy, I presume. I don't know. I mean, you know, I got pretty cold that night. but, but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was really damp. But, the, um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, and, and, and I like that, you know. Mm. I like to be able to tell people I've heard the difference between different species of trees because when you think about it you go into the woods and and the woods is there for a conversation if you want to take part you yeah know, if you want to listen to what the woods is saying it's telling you a lot about what's going on it's telling you whether there are leaves on the trees or they're not by the sound i mean obviously in winter it sounds completely different without the the the, the, the leaves on, on on the trees and um yeah it's good and then if you've got any rain the sound of rain on all of those trees. Oh, the sound is, of rain on leaves is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, sensational. Absolutely sensational. I love that. Yeah. Brilliant. Right. So we should all be going out and having conversations with trees in our gardens, um, which brings me very nicely onto our next question. Um, in terms of wildlife watching and sort of creating habitats, have you got any tips for our listeners as to what they can do in their gardens? Well, this is, um, you know, the, the you know the student teaching the master you know, what you saying? <laughs> I've got many many of my tips from you to be quite honest with you um but um I, I think the first thing is to do and again I something that you've said before you know is look at your space and ask what you can do with it that's what I've been doing I've been looking at my fundamental resources there's no point in planting something that likes it's dry if you've got wet soil mm. you know I've, I've basically inherited some really poor soils over gravel so there are a lot of things that I'm not going to be able to do here but I don't want to fight against that I want to go with the flow and I had some people around they said well you should drain this and I sort of thought well what, 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 no I don't want to drain it it's wet I'll, I'll plant things that like it wet there there's loose strife I can stick that in there's avens and Mm. And there's, you know, ragged robin, all sorts of things which will tolerate, you know, wet soils. So I'm, I'm going with that flow and, I, and therefore I'm going to allow that to control my ambitions. Um, and then I think the key thing is, yeah, is to, to look over the fence, see what your neighbours have got, you know, because again, I, you know, I'm planting beech, uh, sorry, birch here, uh, none in the garden, but outside there's masses. So it makes sense because it will just join that community up. It will be rapidly colonised by the by the, the the bugs and the everything else from over over the fence so that's that's good um 
And then ultimately, if I want to get more creative, um, and I'm going strictly down the sort of native route, as I say, for me, it's a rewilding project on a small scale. Um, I've got to think about water. I've got to think about putting a pond in because we both know how, you know, rapidly and, um, you know, resource, you know, that improves the resource. Mm. So I've, I've got to, I've got to think about how I build a pond here, which is quite difficult because the water is, the water table is very high. So if okay. I line it, it will push the liner up. Hydrostatic pressure of the water beneath ah. the water in my pond will push it up. So the question is, do I just dig a, a deeper hole and, and get used to the fact that it's going to be relatively dry in summer? I could harvest some rainwater from the roof and, and fill it up to a point, I, I suppose. But, you know, that's um, that's certainly part of my, my goal. I, I, I'm lucky I... I did want to put a pond in last autumn, and I'm very pleased that I didn't now because I would have wasted quite a lot of money, I think. I think it would have probably been destroyed by our very high water levels over the course of the winter. Ah. So I think it's about all that sort of pragmatic assessment. I'll tell you one thing I've done. Mm-hmm. Well, I put up a bird table with a, with a unique difference. Oh, yes. So I've, I've, I've got this sort of um, – and what did my father tell me it was called? I can't think now. But basically it looks like, it looks like a bit of medieval siege equipment. <laughs> and it, it, it allows a bird table, a flat platform with some crocodile clips on it, to be to be cantilevered up to a height of about twenty feet. Ah! And um, in a grisly fashion, I've been attaching roadkill, mainly grey squirrels, using the crocodile clips to the platform and hoisting it up so it's it's up above the ground by about twenty feet, out of the way of poodles, foxes, and any other scavengers and um it's attracted the local buzzards and the buzzards are coming in amazing and, uh, yeah just <laughs> just great i've got one buzzard to be fair i mustn't use the plural um, you can identify them because then typically their feather patterns are quite you know easy mm-hmm. to identify they're quite variable the buzzards, so you can you can tell them apart and i've got this one buzzard that comes in it's a bit timid at the moment doesn't mind the poodles in the garden doesn't like me in the garden okay so i'm, I'm peeping at it out of the window through my binoculars but yeah i'm so pleased that i've i've built a feeding platform for buzzards <laughs> i think that's the most chris packham thing i've ever heard you say <laughs> brilliant <laughs> um so i mean yeah you might get a white-tailed eagle because they've been spotted quite close haven't they Imagine well, that in your garden. I know. My garden list is, um, obviously, that was the first thing I started, started counting the bird species. Mm. Um, highlights over the winter have been red pole, uh, peregrine falcon, little egret. Uh, they've all been good. We've got a lot of woodpecker activity. Um, more if I peer over the fence at the moment, if I'm honest with you. But as long as I'm standing in the garden, anything that I see and hear is on the list. But you're nice. absolutely right. I mean, we're on the south coast and those eagles are you know, being released on the Isle of Wight, but they're roaming quite regularly onto the mainland. It's only a matter of time. I just keep gazing skyward looking for the, the big they... barn door, you know. <laughs> Before they find your roadkill perch. Amazing. Oh, can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> so does that mean, does that mean you're, you're, you're going around, you're going on your walks and you're finding roadkill and then you're you know just carrying it back on your in a little knapsack maybe and, and taking well, it home. driving down the road and i mm-hmm. i see a a, a gray squirrel it, it goes into the passenger side footwell and then i freeze them or put them straight up onto the platform it took about two weeks for the for the buzzard to find it and it was very nervous initially i have noticed oh. that in a in a period where i didn't find any dead squirrels luckily for the squirrels of course um <laughs> i did try uh you know uh free-range trick chicken drumsticks um, but it didn't like those. Oh. So it's, it's, it's just going for the squirrels at the moment. Yeah. Oh, 
Beautiful. Beautiful. What a lovely image to, to nearly end on. Um, right. So um, I've just got one more question, Chris, and that's all about Springwatch. Um, so, so what's going on this year? What's in the pipeline? Well, we have plans, rather like we had plans last year, um, but we're keeping our plans as flexible as possible because obviously at the moment um, there are certain indications that restrictions might be lifted in April and May. Our programme doesn't go out until the end of May and June. Um, but we're having to sort of come up with three or four different ideas about how we'll make the programme just as we did last year because we will, we will obviously comply to all of the government guidelines as and when they are outlined to us. Um, at the moment, it would suggest that we will be able to leave, I'll be able to leave the new forest without um, becoming some sort of ghastly super spreader. Um, and uh, if that is the case, then we will probably change location away from the new forest. But... You know, if lockdown continues or there's another wave and we all have to retreat to our homes yet again, then we'll be broadcasting locally. We know we can do that now. We did it throughout, you know, spring watch, autumn and winter watch. And uh, really well as well. You did it so well. It was, I mean, it was amazing. Well, thank you. I mean, I think hats off to the technical team, basically. Mm. I think theirs was the greatest triumph because trying to make a programme, a live programme from all of those locations around the world using very small numbers of people, uh, you know, who, who were applying really strict guidelines in terms of COVID uh, was a real challenge um, and a testament to their enormous skills and abilities that they managed to put the programme on, on air. Um, and it was, you know, Springwatch in particular and Autumn Watch too were... It was really a joy to be at home and being able to sort of show people my local patch, you know, the badgers that I feed every day and all of those sorts of things. So that was that was great. Um, but we'll ha we'll have to see what happens. We're we're in the the hands of you know how we should behave at that point in time. So yeah, mm. multiple planning platforms at the moment. You know, that's okay. the thing. And we haven't at this stage. You know, we haven't filmed anything. We're not we're not we're still not travelling, obviously, um, mm. around the country. So. We'll hang on for a bit longer, see what happens, and then we'll probably start to make some films locally where it's responsible to go out, you know, as we do in, in our local area. Um, and then if we're allowed, we'll, we'll spread our wings and, and fly around. But the, the benefit is that we've got an enormous network of uh, camera people all across the UK. And um, so we can represent Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. I mean, people can go out wherever they, uh, wherever they want to. Um, and uh, close to them without, you know, doing anything improper and, and get great stuff for us. We just got to pull it all together. And that's the technical expertise is pulling it all together and then being able to put it out. But as I say, we've got some brilliant people working on our, our team behind the scenes. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. And for more gardening tips and inspiration, why not try our new magazine subscription offer for podcast listeners at buysubscriptions.com forward slash GW pod. If you subscribe before the 21st of April, you'll get our May issue and a year's two-for-one Gardens Guide and Entry Card. You'll also find this special offer in our podcast page on gardenersworld.com, where we share more about today's themes. So, if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time. Bye.